0: Hey Mike. Hi Caleb. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. It's been a festival-filled weekend. It is.
1: It is. The Art and Wine Festival came to downtown Palo Alto. It was glorious.
0: And uh, I went to this Facebook one. It was extremely crowded. We only stayed for a short period of time because it was so busy. So it was very popular. But um, did you like it? I did not like it. Uh, Okay. What are you you drinking?
1: uh, Tonight I am drinking a cocktail called the Cameron's Kick. It mm. is out of the PDT book. Uh, it has some blended Scotch whiskey, some Irish whiskey, and uh, lemon juice and orgeat mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, shake it all up, put it in a coupe. Uh, it's quite nice. It's a, uh, my, my lemon's a little bit sour, but you know, so goes life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's pretty good. we drink again. How about you? Uh, I'm
0: having a classic Pisco sour. Cool. And uh, yeah, so got the good old Pisco, lemon juice, uh, fresh um or sorry lime juice and uh fresh simple syrup which is a funny thing to make fresh and uh, then I put the little (laughs) Angostura bitters on it and use a little uh little toothpick to make a little design so oh what design did you make uh, a star so I I just sort of radiated out from the center so it's nice and you know I had some fresh eggs so I decided it'd be probably safe Low E. coli risk, but we'll, we'll find out in a couple days. <laughs> All right, keep us posted. So, before we jump into the topic, uh, went to the factory this weekend. Uh, since I was over by Facebook and just decided to drive over and saw <laughs>
1: you, there's no, I decided I was there, so I stopped over. It's the entire close. other
0: side of the bay. Well, we were bored at the Facebook thing and it was overwhelming, so we decided to leave and then went and got some food over there. And, uh, we went and got Mexican food, which is right across from the factory. So, uh, anyways, okay. saw saw a bunch of Model Threes. Saw about nine Model Threes ready to be delivered, and there were so many S's and X's as well. And they were all being loaded up onto the trucks. Uh, the Model Threes were uh, were were just sort of all there, and I could tell they were ready for delivery because they had um, the like cover, like little plastic bits <gasps> on the wheels. Car covers no car cover. They had little plastic bits on the wheels. They had, um, uh, the screen protector on the big 15 inch screen. Um, they had a little piece of paper on the dashboard, uh, presumably like some information about who it's going to. And, uh, yeah, they looked, they looked really good. So for what it's worth, there were a bunch more model threes that had not yet been delivered. And interestingly, like they put them back with the delivery lot, like with all the other cars, which means they didn't, you know, deliver them that week or instantly. Which I found kind of interesting. Which would mean that people who were getting them probably don't work at the factory. Uh, otherwise, why would they move them all the way back there just to deliver them? So
1: interesting. Maybe they went down to SpaceX for some SpaceX yeah, employees. It could be
0: some SpaceX folks. It could be some people in Palo Alto that they're going to actually drive them there altogether. Um, but we'll we'll soon see. Um, but I thought it was kind of intriguing. So uh, with that out of the way, some breaking news, as it were, I thought this week we could cover something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, but haven't really found the right junction to do it. And we're sort of in a little bit of a lull for particular new Model 3 news. So I thought we could uh, talk about OpenAI. And uh, so this is tangentially related to Tesla uh, because it's sort of an Elon Musk joint, um, and, uh, but certainly related through the... AI work and um, the head of AI now at Tesla used to be a researcher at OpenAI. So there you go. So you know, if
1: you're not interested in AI, this might very well be the boring episode. But it is not about the boring company.
0: Sure. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about OpenAI and then AI and superintelligence and Elon's thoughts on on both and our thoughts on both. So this will probably be one of our more heady, uh, philosophical pontification <laughs> episodes. So it'll be it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm kind of I enjoy talking about this stuff, so it'll be fun to lay it to tape and see how it turns out. What's tape? Yeah, exactly. Um, to the
1: bits. <laughs> Anyways, so... So, yeah, so, and, and TLDR, for people who might uh, decide to stop it and not skip ahead, Elon is uh, a little concerned.
0: He is. He is indeed. He uh, believes that this is, that AI is potentially the number one most existential risk to humanity and civilization. And therefore needs to be treated with much more reverence and concern and uh, mm, effort and human energy into uh, predicting and helping there be a safe and good outcome for humanity. And so he is trying to do that. So openai's mission, uh, so it's a new 501 C3, so it's a nonprofit, and uh, it was started by Elon and also um, uh, Sam Altman, um, who is uh, a former Y Combinator uh, founder from many years ago and now is the head of Y Combinator, which is a startup accelerator, probably the most famous startup accelerator. And um, so they started it and uh, they got participation from uh, one of their, the CTO at at uh, Stripe, who's now the CTO at uh, OpenAI, um, Greg Brockman. Uh, Reid Hoffman's involved, Jessica Livingston. Um, Peter Thiel, uh, Amazon Web Services is (laughs) uh, involved as well as uh, Infosys and Microsoft as uh, funders. And they so far have committed a billion dollars, one billion, but they say they don't expect to spend all that uh, in the next few years that uh, they, you know. They expect for this to run for a very long time, and they started as a nonprofit because they didn't want to have the uh, conflict of interest of, of generating a profit off of this work because their mission is to build safe AI and ensure AI's benefits are as widely and evenly distributed as possible. So break that down for us, Mike. What, what, what are they trying <laughs> to say there? That's the, you know, missions are always interesting
1: yeah it seems like the, the big concern they have is that um, as AI is developed, um, that companies like you know the, the, the pioneering companies here, like the sort of the, the apples, Google's, Facebooks, these companies are so ahead of the curve with all the data that they sit on that they are going to be able to develop AI and monetize AI uh, in such a way that the people who are ahead uh, once the AI is developed or, or these like sort of generalized AIs uh, that the the uh, sort of returns that will come to them will be accelerating. So you can imagine like as people, as AI becomes more and more generalized it replaces more and more people's jobs and it does more and more things on its own and uh, essentially the rich get richer and everyone else is kind of left in the dust and that what they are working towards is, is a more sort of democratized AI, I guess, where, Mm -hmm. um, the sort of, I guess the, uh, to put it in cinematic terms, like they're trying to prevent like Cyberdyne systems from developing Skynet and, uh, having it, uh, take over the entire earth, uh, and instead, uh, chart some sort of heretofore unvisualized path where there is some sort of, utopian uh, democratic AI, where I guess the idea being that with everyone having access to it, you could imagine AI, this like generalized AI, this sort of super intelligence, um, at least for a little while being put to the benefit of all humanity. Um, So this would be sort of the utopian vision of no one needing to toil in meaningless jobs, uh that uh there's a sort of super intelligence taking care of everything um and the idea there being that that super intelligence needs to be directed somehow i mean i think there's it's a we can get into this in a little bit but there's a little bit of uh sort of hubris involved with uh inventing something that's more intelligent than yourself and then presuming to think that you can then direct what it does Um, but that's the general idea. Does that, did did I sum that up? Well, I'm not sure. I, I I tend to get a little rambly when I start talking about these things, but, but I, I think that kind of sums it up in a nutshell. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's really clear. I think that
0: the, you know, when I, when I first saw that this came out, I think it was, uh, it was right after it, right in the beginning of 2015, it was in December of 2015, they made their first blog post. And, um, so it's pretty new. I mean, it's only a year and a half, two years old. Um, and, uh, the thing that struck me was how, um, how strong of an engineering and research effort they were bringing to this. And this is something that Elon's talked about in a lot of interviews he's done about open AI is that many nonprofits and foundations, and I serve on the board of a foundation, so I can definitely relate to this is, uh, that they tend not to move with much urgency and uh, they tend to move at very slow pace, um, unfortunately, have a tough time attracting young talent, because by the time most people are willing and able to serve on a board and have time, they're retired. And so their um, capability to um, do like work is less. Um, they're much better at sort of directing projects. Um, and so a lot of foundations have lots of high goals and can attract resources and have lots of connections, but ultimately don't do much. They um, tend to sort of just um, help direct or set an agenda. And OpenAI is quite different in that it's an operating 501c3, and it's operating with uh, a staff of now over 50 uh, researchers and software engineers who are being paid well because they have the funding and get to work on a project funded by Elon Musk to drive fundamental research on AI with this overarching idea of how do you build safe, general-purpose AI. So... If you are a researcher uh, doing AI, uh, you have the option to basically stay in ac- academia and do research there and teach, to go to one of the uh, aforementioned leading tech companies and work in their AI team and be paid quite handsomely for that, but being tasked most, gen- most often uh, to apply that work to a, a more sort of short range target of, of making a product more capable. Uh, and there really wasn't a third alternative. And what was interesting to me was seeing OpenAI sort of provide this third alternative of going to work in an environment that's fast paced and uh, with sort of a small team of really, really capable people, similar to what a um, company might provide with that resource and that, that sort of scale potential, um, and then, uh, but, but being able to work on these really long range problems with the sort of very, um, uh, positive idea of, of trying to benefit <laughs> anyone who wants to use AI and having your work be published publicly and available where in the commercial domain, oftentimes some of, some of the best information is kept private about the advancements they've made for many years and will later publish papers about things they've done because there's you know legitimate competitive reasons why you don't want every other company who's building products that use ai to um benefit from the work that you've paid your team to do um and so OpenAI is trying to uh, advance some of these things faster so everyone uh you know, theoretically would have access to the state of the art, um, so that it doesn't progress so, so quickly, uh, within certain companies' walls, um, and, uh, and not really be able to be as, as, uh, diffused. So <laughs> I, I think that's really, really cool. And the other thing that's neat is that they are taking this approach of having both the researchers who are doing the fundamental research with software engineers who are very skilled at building back end infrastructure. So the fact that Greg Brockman is the CTO, he's a CTO of, uh, was the CTO of Stripe and one of the early, I think founders and, or at least one of the very first people at Stripe and Stripe is a payments company and they process, uh, many, many hundreds of billions of dollars in credit cards now. And I think, you know, probably up into the 10, 20, 30% of, of a lot of folks, online transactions are probably going through Stripe. And so, uh, that experience is uh, super useful if you're going to be building these very large distributed uh, software stack to run these programs. Because one of the advantages that the tech companies have certainly is not only the ability to pay people well from the research side, but the actual ability to ingest billions of pieces of data or trillions of pieces of data and then run these algorithms on it. Because just having the algorithm isn't the the only bit. You actually have to then apply it and train these systems. So uh, right. being able to fuse the theoretical advancements in the algorithms, as well as the technical capabilities of, well, how do you even store all this information, process it, provide a, a, an environment for people to do that. That's really valuable. And, you know, building just sort of a think tank on AI wouldn't get you that depth. So I, I thought that is a, a really distinct difference for open AI compared to a lot of uh, nonprofit Uh, initiatives and something that I thought was just really exciting. It kind of reminds me of uh, the Gates Foundation a little bit in, in sort of how they try and do more applied projects and bring more (laughs) of a business sort of sensibility to, uh, philanthropy. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking it kind of reminds me of, uh, if you can imagine some sort of third party rolled in during uh World War II and tried to compete with the the Manhattan project uh to kind of develop because there's some similarities to this like idea of a civilization level tool that you're building with mm-hmm. whether it's a nuclear bomb or artificial general intelligence that it's something that uh you know there's there's some sort of respect towards the uh impact of such a of such a technology and you know who can control it and what you can do with it and uh in in this vein i guess it would be in this in in this sort of weird analogy is instead of the axis and the allies allied powers like competing to develop nuclear technology that there would also be this sort of third uh open nuke uh company coming in to to develop it and democratize it i guess i don't know if that analogy
0: is perfect yeah no i think the 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 nuclear stuff comes up a fair amount in talking about ai and i guess we can take a slight diversion to that for now uh i think the the idea here is that yeah this is potentially a very dangerous thing and we'll get to why that is but if you presume that ai potentially could be dangerous so you just hold that idea in your head then there are a few other technologies that humans have created that have the potential risk uh, to annihilate society. So, you know, inventing a stapler doesn't really pose the existential risk to society. It might cause some <laughs> people some pain or kill some people, but it's probably not going to take out... The not even a red swig people. line? Exactly. It's not going to take out six billion, seven billion people. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the technology we've developed over time has... Uh, really just contributed to um, positive overall gains to productivity and GDP and eventually world um, sort of standard of living
1: going up. Yeah, which is not to say that there's not negative implications, but usually the positive kind of outweighs it. And generally, you know, society is moving forward. Yeah, exactly. So
0: we've actually been extremely lucky, I would say, in the short amount of time we've been as humans creating technologies or discovering them, depending on which view you take. (laughs) either way uh the outcome is the same that most technologies are generally pretty benign and generally quite uh advantageous to us being able to do more as a as a society and as a as a
1: species yeah definitely i I was actually just i I had long long sitting in my reading queue was uh sapiens from uh right was it uh no noah harai I, i forget the author's name a historian um it's it's a great. I highly recommend reading this book. I, I put it off for a long time, but it was well worth reading. Kind of traces the sort of uh, history of Homo sapiens um, from you know when we first started speaking to each other to where we are now. And one of the things that hit me uh, towards the end of the book was talking about the rail network and and like when when trains were first invented and started spreading across uh, Britain, I believe, um, and that that was like. To less than 200 years ago mm-hmm. and it, it, it was crazy like and that's when like that then led to like standardized time because all of a sudden you you know every town used to have their own like clock in the center of town yeah totally and they could keep their own time and it didn't really matter and you know and once you started going from town to town you had to have like rail networks then you were concerned with like that the times all matched up and yeah it, it's it's just mind-blowing when you start thinking about, and this is getting into the concept of sort of acceleration of technology, but it, it's just crazy to think that, you know, it was like hundreds of thousands of years ago where we first started talking and discovered fire. And then, you know, and then we sort of made some progress over the course of like 10 or a hundred thousand years. And then like, it was a thousand years then all of a sudden a hundred years. And now we're down to like, I mean, the, the iPhone seems like something that is just a given, but you know, this is, Access to any sort of technology where I can communicate with anyone in the almost just about anyone in the world through like video and like photo level video reproduction and it like communicates wirelessly wherever i am and this is something that even 10 years ago would have seemed kind of trippy yeah exactly and ten, 20 years ten, ago it yeah. would have seemed impossible
0: impossible yeah because that's what i was going to say 10 years it was commercially available and 20 years ago was just sort of a, a glimmer in someone's
1: eye of being possible and yeah so i guess it, it kind of gets to this idea of like it, it almost seems like the more you step back and realize like the the sort of slope of the exponential curve that we're on the more crazy it seems to try and predict what's going to happen in i mean what five years 10 years two years i mean it's and 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 yeah i mean that's even just like the base technologies and when you start talking about like the all of the follow-on implications from all of these technologies it's i don't know i feel like you just need to you know be a twig on the stream and roll with it but well like elon one-
0: feels otherwise <laughs> Well, I think one thing implicit in that is that the curve isn't flattening from anything we can see. That if you look at it on the arc of time since humanity or, you know, Homo sapiens became a species that we can identify to now, almost everything that we think of as technology looks like a straight up and down vertical line. Yeah. And so it makes it seem as if the time we're in now is sort of an aberration in the of humanity and certainly an aberration in the timeline of the universe uh that we've observed and so i think the, the crazy thing is that uh the pa- the, the pace of acceleration and the, the continued push if you expect this would continue for any degree of time at some point it the absolute amount of technology and capability would become so extreme that a super intelligent uh, capable thing AI <laughs> seems almost inevitable. Like if you if right. you imagine a thousand years, right? So two hundred years ago, we barely even had trains, and a thousand years ago, we were barely knowing how to farm. Like two thousand years, maybe. Um, that a thousand years from now, what do you have? And then you just keep cutting that in half, and like at some point, you're like, yeah, we're definitely going to have uh, some crazy new technology that probably can surpass human capability, especially when you imagine that uh, you you look back and say, okay, of all the animals that are out there, is it more likely that we are the most special crazy animal or that we just happen (laughs) to be an animal at the end of an evolutionary track that we are where we are now? But that, that there's no limit necessarily to intelligence. There's no limit to uh sort of the capability of some organism or non-organism
1: yeah it seems it seems a little arrogant to think that we are the the end state of intelligence like the reality is we're probably somewhere in the spectrum somewhere like right yeah i i I think it seems a little arrogant to think we're even like in the middle of the spectrum we, we might even be very far like low on the spectrum given how uh things like intelligence seem to have accelerating returns. I mean, and we're kind of getting into the, if you've read any like Ray Kurzweil stuff, um, he talks a lot about accelerating returns of technology and how, I mean, you can do more when your technology can do more. And that compounds, it's almost like kind of the compound interest of progress. It it does, your
0: future intelligence or future technology begets more good technology at a
1: faster rate and yeah and you can kind of see this a little bit too when you and it, we we kind of view this in a in a funny nostalgic way cuz when you look back at like what people thought the future was going to be in 1900 or 1950 or 1970, it's always like a linear extrapolation from what they had in their current reality. But of course, the future that actually shows up in 50 years from when they thought it was doesn't mean that we had like you know faster cars that still had you know fins on the back and played eight track tapes or whatever. It was like a totally different reality. So it's it's just kind of funny to to kind of think that wherever you are, you're kind of inherently stuck with your anchor in your current reality and you just tend to extrapolate linearly from there. But the reality is always different. Yeah,
0: for sure. So I want to (laughs) come, I want to come back to some more of these as we get into the super intelligence stuff, but on, on the open AI side, one or two more things I just want to hit on before we move on. So they, they may keep to your safety thing. They may keep some information private for, uh, mainly for safety concerns and they're going to create a formal process for revealing that information and uh so they their goal is not just to like um do research without any goal like their goal is to eventually create a safe general purpose soup like ai and so, so what
1: is, yeah what does that mean does that mean that, so that's going to be like a, a how can they guarantee that something that is safe won't like if it's more intelligent and you won't realize that, even though I was told to be nice to humans, that it's in my better interest to not. Yeah. So there, there's there's a lot of stuff on
0: the control side, but their current best thinking uh, of of a lot of the researchers that I could find was to basically try and Im- have the uh, super intelligence and the AI. Learn humans' values as a society, and imbue those values in its decision-making process, and have humans uh, be involved in helping guide the optimization framework. Because the general idea of what intelligence is is the ability to uh, make decisions about how to allocate resources to some goal. So a um, a fish may try and find. Kelp uh, fast enough so that it doesn't, you know, die, and also avoid things that will kill it, uh, and so it has some level of intelligence. Now that fish can't do linear algebra, but that's <laughs> not a goal that it necessarily has, and so that's okay. And humans can have much more, uh, much more varied goals, and uh, we generally are considered to have a lot more intelligence because we can achieve many different types of goals um, with different amounts of, of resources and um, also coordination so i think that the their idea is to create a uh, an ai that currently um, ais are quite narrow in their capabilities and we've talked about this on the show quite a lot that uh, you can now train a neural network to identify um, animals and objects at a rate that is now at human capability but if you were then were to take that same model and have it play a video game or uh, play music, it, it, that same model couldn't do it. Where a human that can identify those animals and shapes can then turn around and work on writing a symphony or turn around <laughs> and play a video game. Uh, right. It's possible for a human to do that. And so their goal is to get to a place where they have a single model that can do everything a competent adult human can could do or learn to do. So that's what we're talking about here for human level general purpose AI is that a single model could do anything a competent adult human could do. (laughs) And that is quite an extreme. We are quite far away from that today. The the best estimates from researchers who were polled a few years ago was that there's a they give it a 50% chance that we will reach that level by 2040. And a ninety percent chance we'd reach it by twenty seventy five. Uh, that number, to your point about Ray Kurzweil, that number has gotten closer and closer each each few years, um, more than the time elapsing. So people uh, twenty or thirty years ago thought it was going to be past the one hundreds, uh, the 2100s. And so as we've made progress, people keep pulling that number in. so um, it's it's possible <laughs> to happen within our lifetimes. Uh, and that's pretty incredible. So that's what they're, they're trying to do. And then the control point of how do they try and make it safe is, is, uh, they've, even in some of the very basic experiments, which we'll get to on some of the reinforcement learning, sometimes when you give an AI a a optimization task, it does a very good job of optimizing on it. But ultimately, it optimizes in a way that a human would find unpleasant or unsavory. And <laughs> this therefore... is like the,
1: the paperclip example from the superintelligence book.
0: Yeah. Can you, can you describe that one or a variation on, on that one? For yeah, folks yeah. Who I mean, it's it.
1: just, it's almost like kind of the the old story about the genie that grants wishes and being like hyper literal about the the wish that it grants. Or um, Midas's d- touch. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So you can, in, in this particular example, which uh, this, there's a book called Superintelligence that came out. Uh, couple of years ago, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think twenty fifteen. Philosopher or so. Nick Bostrom. Yep. Um and there's a lot of good videos on YouTube too of him talking about it too. If you'd rather not read the book and just kind of hear the the uh the TLDR uh Q and A version. Literally uh, anyways, the TLDR. The, <laughs> yeah. Yeah exactly. Um until the uh until we have an AI that can read it for you and explain it to you. Yep. Um or Matrix style, maybe you can just download it into your brain at some point if the more likely neural, if the neural lace works. Um, So, yeah, anyway, sorry. The the paperclip example is that you could imagine um, setting up some sort of like a paperclip company sets up a a super intelligent being to run its factory, and it's it's given the goal of making paperclips. And uh, without any sort of controls on that, you can this ai would all of a sudden start cannibalizing every piece of metal and every piece of every resource on earth to make paper clips until the the earth was barren and dead and was just completely full of all of these pristine paper clips that it was happily making uh, to meet its goal Right. So the the idea there is like, oh, how how wrong what could go wrong with just
0: asking, you know, an AI to optimize a paperclip factory like, oh, this sounds great. Let's make more paperclips faster. Cool. (laughs) Oh, wow. This thing's doing a really good job. It's cranking them out twice as fast as our human workers. Great. And then it gets better and better and better at this. And then it realizes, you know, I don't have enough metal like I should, this, I, I need to go start mining. And so then it builds all these machines to mine better. And then it takes every single car and every building and breaks them down for, for Take, scrap metal and takes the fillings out of human's teeth. And yeah, basically yeah, it's the idea of this logical extreme that a human would be like, no, that's not, that's not right. You can't do that. But what would stop this system from doing it? And one of the, the other things I think people get hung up on is this confusion of like robots versus AI. And one thing I find uh, in the Superintelligence book that was quite uh, helpful in thinking about this is humans, um, leaders of companies, leaders of governments, one person can direct many, many millions of people to do something uh, given they are able to persuade them or can um, control them in some way. And right. so even a disembodied computer system sending people emails or paying people right like if an ai could could basically manipulate the stock market to make a lot of money have money in its bank account it could just pay people to do stuff right. so it doesn't need to have arms and legs and you know recreate these cyberdyne robots to go do its will it can just pay human <laughs> beings to do this and they'll happily do a lot of things um
1: if you watch the uh the tv show person of interest is a person of interest that's what it's called right yeah, that the one where the the spying and the guy. Yeah, from they Lost. create this like I mean, yeah, yeah, the <laughs> Linus from Lost. Linus. Yeah. Um, and then the guy from Frequency. Um, so, anyways, yeah, yeah, yeah. the the idea is like they create this sort of uh, super intelligent AGI that is tasked with uh, crime prevention and surveillance, and yeah, it, it ends up doing things like you know hiring companies to outsource and build its technology. It hires like, you know, uh, security firms to like do things. It hires delivery firms to bring things to places. And there's a lot of stuff you can do just by doing that, which is one exploration, one sort of pop culture exploration of it.
0: And what's crazy about that is that is that is like human level intelligence
1: yeah that's linear extrapolation right exactly
0: humans can clearly do that so if you could have a hundred million human bots right so there's a difference between scale and capability so if you have like a million uh they use the term like village idiots a lot in this in (laughs) research for talking about intelligence so i'm not being pejorative to dumb people but the idea is like there are some people (laughs) who have lower iq uh and they have limited capabilities But with a lot of those people, you can still accomplish quite a lot of uh, uh, goals. You can still do a lot. But then you have this other level of imagine if you had a million Albert Einsteins, what could you accomplish? And then you have a billion people a thousand times smarter than Albert Einstein. And that's what we're sort of talking about with this super intelligence idea is that okay, if you've got 150 IQ, cool, that'd be pretty freaking amazing to have 150 IQ. What if you had? You can't even really measure it, but a 1,000 IQ or yeah. 10,000 IQ or a million IQ. What would you be capable of? And I think if you think about what really smart adults are capable of versus children, uh, that gives you maybe a little bit of an idea. And then you're <laughs> I like... I think
1: it's more like trying to explain like quantum physics to my dog. It's like, you know, it's... Like my my dog is an intelligent being, like it can do things, it has a memory, it, it can be trained and, you know, it clearly has emotions and it has a mental, like internal mental state, but. Right. It can remember things, it has goals, it wants to eat, it
0: doesn't, sometimes it, it can have mood swings.
1: Right, right. But like, yeah, you know, trying to explain, you know, quantum superposition to it or something or the, you know, multi-worlds or, or whatever, is not going to, or, you know, just anything. I mean, it doesn't even have to be any, any highfalutin things. Yeah, and and I feel like like the 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 tough part for most humans is realizing like you know in that analogy like we are the dog, yeah. If we're lucky, like you know, know, if if things are accelerating, we could be well beyond being. We could be the sort of flea that's sitting on my dog's fur. Yeah, exactly. And I think
0: that's the that's another very common aspect to this when you start digging into the superintelligence and just artificial intelligence world is that. Researchers have done uh, a lot of studies on how people perceive intelligence and smartness and sort of one of the follies of, of uh, the human mind is that we anchor ourselves sort of heliocentric um, and we, <laughs> we do this a lot. Um, And so we sort of think of ourselves as like slightly above average smart. And so then (laughs) we think the the lake will be gone effect. Yeah. We sort of think about like, well, Albert Einstein or um, Stephen Hawking or Bill Gates or Elon Musk are sort of maybe somewhere close to one edge of smartness. And then you think about maybe the dumbest person you've ever met. And then you, you subtract some from that and you're like, okay, that's, those are the boundaries of intelligence for humans. And, what they forget to, to think about is that uh, all the other animals and single-celled organisms as like a single-celled organism as like one end of the spectrum and then an unbounded infinity to the other and have a really <laughs> hard time placing themselves next to that single-cell organism. Yeah. Um, and that if that's more the case, the really important part here on superintelligence is and this is what Elon Musk talks about. This is what Nick Bostrom talks about and Ray Kurzweil is that, look, it may look like AI right now is not very smart because it's not general purpose, but in the same way that you go from a single celled ant or a single celled organism to like an ant that maybe can accomplish one or two tasks to a mouse that can then sort of run mazes and keep track of things that maybe AI is sort of getting close to the mouse level of observed intelligence and goal capabilities that seems pretty good but but then getting to the human is not uh the final step getting to human level intelligence may just be a very short blip from there to then doubling again <laughs> or 10xing again and yeah. that that, that stop. this idea of getting to, to human level intelligence is sort of what we always talk about of wow general purpose ai when it could do whatever a human could do and what the current concerns are and what open AI is really trying to protect against is that next step, that next potential, uh, it, could, it could be as few as a minute, 10 minutes, 20 minutes of evolution. Because once you get to the human level, you, humans now can sort of wash their hands. They're, they're kind of out because any human who's participated, definitionally, the system is now as smart as those humans who've participated in creating it. And so now it will participate in its own creation and advancement.
1: Yeah, the important thing there is that like we are biologically kind of frozen where we are. I mean, there's there like we we alluded to uh, Elon Musk's Neural Lace idea of of trying to meld uh, humans with AI, but ultimately, like you know, even the smartest human, we're we're, we're stuck. We're bounded by our our biology and the AI. Our biology were... is not very good, <laughs> right? Well, well, I mean, it's very good for what it does, but um, ultimately, it's not necessarily uh it's a local maximum right like we are we have highly intelligent humans but it's based within a certain amount of of biology that's tied to the uh the evolutionary biology that got them to where they are that builds the that builds the brain and you know that governs all this stuff and you can't necessarily like stitch a second brain onto your head or a third brain or Ten brains, or a thousand brains, or something. Whereas, right. uh, if you're building digital intelligence or, or computational intelligence, you could do something like that. And there's a there's a great uh, series of posts on uh, a website. Uh, Wait, but why? Uh, if you if you don't read it, you you totally should. Uh, this guy Tim Urban writes this great website with some amazing explanations of of technology there's a good one about neural lace and various elon musk posts Uh, but there's some a couple of good ones about uh super intelligence and i I believe if i remember correctly he likens it to uh, a train that we're building and uh we are going to be watching the train and the train is further down the tracks and like like you said kev it's at the mouse intelligence level and it's racing towards us and when it gets to us at the train station it will technically be at human level but that train has a high velocity and it's not actually just stopping right at human level it's just flying right by us and it's just going to keep going and at that point it's it's sort of a singularity event where we don't know what will happen after that
0: exactly if we have the capability or when we achieve the capability to to make human level intelligence there is almost no evidence to suggest that's the peak right that we are purely a stop along the station as it were and and one thing to reinforce this that really made it super clear to me was when you look at actual brain capabilities, it's amazing how much we're capable of given our hardware. So <laughs> when you translate this, so the the neurons in the brain operate around 200 Hertz. Uh, so that is, they can sort of fire at 200 times per second. If you look at a transistor at around two gigahertz, which isn't even that crazy, we have four gigahertz ones, that would be 10 million times faster than our neurons. So if we were able to fully model our brain capabilities with the same number of neurons, it would be 10 million times faster, 10 million times more operations. Then you look at the transfer speed of axon to neuron, uh, like neuron to neuron uh, transmission, And even though you think of it as sort of electrical impulses, it's not quite. It actually is like only 100 meters per second, which is pretty slow transfer speed when you compare that to transistors, which transfer at the speed of light, um, (laughs) which is, again, millions of times faster. And then you also think about, like you were just mentioning, size our brain is fixed in size in our own head uh, due to reproduction needs of being birthed. Um, (laughs) And so we kind of stopped. And then the other concern was that one other big reason our brain didn't keep evolving much, much larger is that the brain uses a ton of energy. Yeah. Um, we, we consume a lot of our uh, cal- calorie intake to our brain. And so when you think about what humans were doing, when we, like we haven't really evolved that much since uh, hunting and gathering, I mean, way beyond, way before hunting, hunting and gathering. And so you, you just think about sort of how much work we had to expend. Uh, to achieve an an amount of food that would sustain us so that we wouldn't die off as a species. And brain power is not the number one thing you need there. And so we kind of have a couple hours of good brain usage before we get tired. Um, And so again, (laughs) exactly. So you just think about all those things and it's actually kind of incredible. It's amazing that our brain has come up with so many Hacks and specified parts of the brain to deal with sensory input, like vision and, uh, and, and connections between our limbic system and all these things to allow us to have such a great general purpose intelligence on hardware that is we still don't have the capability in supercomputers to recreate it, but we can see a path to it. Yeah. And at some point we will be able to basically have more computing power than the brain. And then we'll have to figure out algorithms that are f- more efficient than our brain. But it's, it, it is within the sort of realm of possibility of seeing what those might be like. And computers, while they are really good at sort of single purpose, adding and subtracting type things. Our brain is actually really poor at that. Uh, We're much better at these sort of connective uh, parallel tasks and sort of the advent of even quantum computing, uh, which is a more parallel style computing paradigm, may be really interesting. But anyways, (laughs) I just just find it really interesting when you dig into our brain and you look at like a fruit fly's brain. And we're not, I mean, we're a lot bigger than a fruit fly's brain, but not on the tens of orders of magnitude that computer... Like right, capabilities
1: are i mean there's no systematic there's a scale change but not necessarily a systematic change like you can see from smaller organisms like the the brains you can see the evolutionary pattern or path that got from there to to where we are
0: certainly like yeah the the brain and our capabilities of the brain are um it's visible to see sort of how computers might be able to match that and open ai clearly is taking an approach of a computer superintelligence and a artificial intelligence uh, intelligence, but there are other approaches uh, that you could potentially
1: foresee. um, Yeah, and I feel me- like we shouldn't. This. We shouldn't also uh, part of this. Also, I think my, people might get defensive to hearing about this and reading about this stuff too. And in, and in no way is this diminishing the sort of miraculous accomplishment that was the achievement of you know sentience and you know human intelligence. Like that, that is amazing. It just might not necessarily be the most amazing thing
0: yeah and i think uh definitely the um the important thing here is the future of humanity and our species and there are clearly many the the other interesting thing from biology is the majority of species that have ever existed are extinct (laughs) yeah (laughs) um that that survival as a species um for millions of years is quite unusual And if we want humanity to exist for millions of years, very few of us or any of us will ever be around for that. But it's sort of this goal that humanity has of wanting to continue to exist. Once you've reached this level of intelligence, you sort of want to keep going and imagine a future where people and humans exist. Then you want to worry about what are the potential factors that could lead to humanity continuing to exist or ceasing to exist and that's what open ai is trying to deal with is this belief that if it is true that ai may potentially be an existential risk that can cause humanity to not exist anymore then we should dedicate some amount of human energy today to thinking about it and addressing it even if it turns out to be a wasted energy um A small probability of a very, very huge, valuable outcome not being possible is worth doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't know if this comes from the Sapiens book or if I read this somewhere else, but one of the things that kind of blew my mind was uh we we all when you think of dinosaurs we all tend to think of like the t-rex as being you know yeah the prototypical yeah that's like what pops in your mind usually um but the the t-rex and and that was sort of almost at the end of the the dinosaur uh reign yeah if i remember correctly um, and the, the T-Rex was actually, we are closer, humans right now are closer in existence to the T-Rex, it's like 65 million years or something like that, than the T-Rex was to the first dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Like the di- dinosaurs were around for hundreds of millions of years. And, you know, we've been around, you know, the T-Rex went extinct, you know, were it not for a, an errant asteroid, you know, colliding with the Earth 65 million years ago, you know, there might be super intelligent dinosaurs running around right now. Um, with feathers too because we we've,
0: we've learned that they have feathers. Well, and um, this is one of the I mean this all relates to Elon I mean Elon Musk's goals are so interrelated, right? Because the potential so the potential risk for humans going extinct, there are human there are um human generated risks. Uh AI is potentially one of those. Uh, nuclear weapons are another and there there are a few others um the gray goo of the nanobots that we we heard about in the 90s that sort of faded away yeah the uh sort of nanobots and some pathogen problems um and then there are natural issues like um uh floods storms earthquakes volcanoes and then space space debris yeah yeah. (laughs) and so when you look at humanity uh pre any sort of industrialization we were just sort of roaming around uh we did pretty well for a couple million years um without any space debris coming up on us so (laughs) that that isn't like the the probabilities of of that are quite low um and the dinosaurs as you said had a pretty long reign so if we can use our time for the next few million years to get off of this planet to then uh, populate other planets, then um, the likelihood of any, basically have really good backup. Um, And so that certainly relates to SpaceX and uh, Elon's goals there of trying to ensure humanity's future. Um, If we make it through the AI on Earth, then the next uh, potential existential risk would be some sort of extinction event on Earth and having having a backup on other planets makes sense. And certainly with superintelligence, the ability to do uh, space travel and all these things will only be easier because we will have uh, billions and trillions of super, super smart people, essentially, uh, working to solve these sorts of problems that you could uh, theorize sort of an eventuality where we, every star in every galaxy being inhabit every, and then every planet basically being inhabitable, and we know there are billions of each, that there could be, you know, massive massive amounts of of humans in in
1: the galaxy um well only if we solve the ai problem though because otherwise we just have a a bunch of examples of ai taking over humans all over the place sure so 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 some of the i guess that's a question is like you know if we do start moving to another planet do we leave some of the technology behind and force ourselves to start over or or do we bring our current state and extrapolate that out to wherever we go
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, I, I expect it will be, we are going to bring that stuff with us. And if we extinct ourselves, um, we will
1: have extincted ourselves um, everywhere. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, to me, that's the the weird part about the, the open AI. I mean, I guess if, if I'm thinking about it, we've got sort of a few options. There's the, there's the option of just, you know, status quo. Like we can just try and keep everything right where it is or or you know keep ourselves at the top of the intelligence peak uh as it were um and you know that seems unsustainable for for various reasons but you know you know if if a bigger asteroid hit us or if we nuclear war struck or or something then you know we i don't know if that would actually guarantee a, a cap or if it would just set us back and start the process over but anyways there's that's that's like one option Um, There's a sort of open AI is taking the approach of trying to develop a friendly or constrained AI. Um, And then I I, I guess there's the sort of a a third option, which would be more of a uh, embracing our status as a uh, sort of transitional species and, you know, working to develop the best and most sustainable uh, next level intelligence and kind of, you know, whatever happens, happens after that kind of the the YOLO approach.
0: Yeah, that is, um, there there are some uh, ethicists and folks who are uh, thinking that through primarily from the case of, well, if AI is now the dominant source of intelligence, so if you take about sort of the total capability of everything on earth, that the current capability certainly is skewed towards humans that humans have more capability than any other species on earth and so we sort of if you think about mass ut- utility and maximizing utility then humans have the most say in maximizing utility and making that decision for other animals because we can have the biggest impact on more positive utility and happiness for everyone but if ai is actually the dominant uh, capability sort of master like they have the most points to invest in utility creation and maximization then maybe their will is actually what should dominate uh the (laughs) decision-making framework and i think a lot of people will be upset even contemplating that idea um but uh certainly from our vantage point now as the potential creator of this intelligence we have a uh, again human-centric approach where we would like (laughs) to be able to uh be in the loop on this and use it for our our, our bidding and our good and our will rather than have it um, uh, foist some thing upon us that we didn't replace want. us basically
1: yeah and yeah. you know what if what if like you know we've we there people are always talking about how we've never what, if there are aliens out there why haven't they communicated with us is there other intelligent life in the universe what if there is other intelligent life in the universe but we are essentially ants compared to it and if we do create super intelligent, you know, intelligent life down here, that it might then start communicating with it's super intelligent life in elsewhere in the universe and realize that it's part of something. And, you know, we are just the sort of ants or dogs or whatever along the way. And, you know, we were just, you know, we're never meant to communicate with other uh, extraterrestrial species or, or whatever, you know, that's another, another sobering, most of this stuff is very sobering when you. When if you, that when idea, you think about
0: it. if that idea resonates
1: with you, I'd recommend her. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that.
0: That one. Uh, that I mean, I think it her that they were communicating with each other, but not yeah. off off planet. But they did leave. But they did leave. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, so some of the goals for OpenAI, uh, more concretely, because they are trying to actually do stuff now, they sort of have to put one foot in front of the other. Um, so one is. It's really funny. Their first goal is to measure progress, which I think is great that their first goal is making sure they can measure this. And the way they're doing this is, uh, with this program called OpenAI gym, which we'll talk about, um, which is this basic idea of, um, how are they going to judge how good their algorithms are at being general purpose? And so, um, they're going to run them across a series of benchmarks, essentially, and test and uh see how general purpose their algorithms are at uh performing different
1: tasks so so is that's this sort like of the first the, one is this like the um the one that just beat the champion of yeah the Wolverine. dota dota right yeah so yeah so can you
0: tell people what just happened with that cuz i think that's probably
1: Yeah so there's this game Dota which i hadn't heard of
0: until <laughs> until this i had not either and i thought i was pretty up on games even though i'm not a huge gamer but yeah it's a yeah. game I guess, or valve game i guess uh,
1: right right yeah i guess it's based off of a world of warcraft mod or something and has gone through a couple of iterations on its own and it's this like massive online um game i guess kind of like starcraft
0: it's like a multi-person multiplayer game competing against like yeah, resource play, mining like, teams and
1: players right yeah. and there's like strategy and there's kind of like a little bit of tower defense and you know it's it's yeah it, it does seem like it would be kind of fun to play uh, but anyways the the They uh, had an AI, OpenAI trained uh, one of their, trained an AI to play it, and he played one of the top players in the world, single player, and beat them. Uh, But what's really interesting is that they did not train the AI with any sort of knowledge of the rules of the game. Like, they just let the AI start playing the game, playing against some built-in bots, and then playing against itself, and playing against whatever. Um, and then, you know, it would determine, it would see how it did, and then it would essentially train itself, uh, and, and got better and better and better. And then I think, uh, I think they said it took like a week to start beating the built in bots, which are like the training bots, which are kind of like, uh, low, low intelligent, like kind of automatons that you can play for training purposes in the game uh and then within i think 2 months i believe it had trained itself to essentially beat the, some of the best players in the world which is kind of gives you a, a sense of of the sort of intel oh sorry uh gives you a sense of the uh uh acceleration of the uh, of the intelligence well and one of the other th- yeah the 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 fact that it was sort of reinforcement
0: learning is like they had a basic method of okay you're going to explore the game and try and maximize winning and just do that. It doesn't tell it how to move. It doesn't tell it what any characters are or anything about the game, which was the traditional, as we've talked about, uh, sort of previous approaches to AI was like define all the rules of the game, all the logic, and then just have it perform that really quickly.
1: Yeah, and this is a, I mean, it was a pretty complicated game because it has, you get points and money or something and you can buy different resources and you command other people to do things. And so it's a pretty complex game. Yeah, there's a lot
0: of strategy in it and uh, there's sort of unknowns where there's parts of the map that aren't revealed. So sort of like poker or something, unlike chess or Go where you can see the whole board at once. So it is certainly a more complex game than a lot of the Atari games that you've seen people beat or have like breakout beat or Pac-Man like right. th- those are certainly a lot smaller uh, space and one of the things watching the video of these of the bot playing was well first they, pl- they had some other top players play it and before they played the bot they asked do you think you're gonna win and they're like yeah of course I no bot is better <laughs> than it than us because these are these are top players like the the total prize pool for this event was like 24 million dollars so these are people who are pretty serious at what they do and the literally the best in the world and people pay to watch them and there's a lot of money in it so they were like oh yeah no, we're gonna win and then it beat everyone like no one beat it and it beat them in ways that they were surprised by and like every time we see one of these games beat the top players it seems to be a uh resound like a a recurring chorus of it played in unusually unusual ways that were unexpected but when it happened they were
1: unprepared for its skill right yeah i mean you're it's basically creativity is what we're talking about yeah if it was a human we would say wow that was really creative
0: yeah it played so differently than any other human ever played and it won uh that is super impressive right and so yeah it is creative and um you watch this guy play and he's like i think i learned something and <laughs> i that's it's so fascinating um and they basically said like they've played for many human lifetimes worth of games and uh they used the microsoft azure cloud to to train it and so they they thank them a lot to providing those resources but imagine if you gave it they they had a couple months I think max like maybe yeah. even a couple weeks. Imagine if it could play for a year or ten years or a hundred years or had a thousand times more compute and so it could do it in a day. I mean, th- so the next step is they're going to do the the five on five because um, the one on one there were a lot of people saying oh that's not really the full game it's not it's not as hard wait till it, it can it could never do five on five and it's like just wait till next year
1: <laughs> yeah because i think it's supposed to be a team game so it's right. kind of a it's a slightly like modified degenerate version of the game to do it that way
0: yeah but if anyone's saying oh yeah no wait till it could do five on five like that it, it couldn't do that i, I my money's <laughs> on open ai um and yeah. so the point here is that the thing that it learned the the thing that taught it how to play the game now, obviously, there's some things to sort of map into the APIs for how the game works and how to move around. But what OpenAI is doing is one of their other goals is to uh, – goal number four is solve a wide variety of games using a single agent. And so they started with playing these uh, you know, very simple Atari-type games and building modifiers for for all those different games and then racing games. And then uh, starting to to build into these more open world 3D games. And now the most recent one, Dota, um, you know, this same reinforcement learning algorithm that was playing Atari has now been sort of improved to now being able to play on Dota. But their goal is to play any game, any computer game with the same exact system and training it on all of them. That such that when it's trained, it could then play the next game and just like a really good human sort of know how to start and know how to play and then just play a million games almost instantly. And then it's just better than anyone at any game ever, forever. Like (laughs) that's, that's one of their goals. And that plays into this idea of this, these two programs they built of Jim and universe, which are the engineering side of this so the researcher is like the 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 um, reinforcement learning side but then it's like okay well how do you get this algorithm to play all these games you need some good engineering there so then they've got 20 percent of their team doing engineering work building these frameworks like gym which basically lets you plug in a game and uh basically parameterize all the different inputs of up, left, right, left, right. What do all those mean? How do you read the screen? How do you understand what, you know, get the uh, success messages and error messages and start the game and stop the game and what happens if it crashes, handle all those cases. So you can throw this algorithm at it and have it play across hundreds or thousands of different instances of the game and share that knowledge. And so that's sort of what Jim does is you can play any game you want. G isn't Jim isn't G Y M. Yeah, exactly. Not, not short for James. Not James. Yeah. <laughs> and then universe is this idea of okay, what if you take all those games and you basically map out how they relate to each other? So, um, Super Mario is going to be close to, to Mario, and Zelda is going to be close to, I don't know, some other game, and like Starcraft is going to be close to Dota, and so then you've got all these different games that you know how to play, and now you can take one. Uh, one algorithm and say, don't just learn how to play on one game, but play on a hundred games all at once. And this reminded me of the idea that that they've done on the convolutional neural networks of, if you were to just train a neural network on stop signs, for instance, it'd get pretty good at recognizing stop signs. But if you showed it a duck or a cat, it wouldn't really know what to do with that right but what they now do is they train it on thousands of different types of images and some companies are probably training on a lot more than that to generalize to understand everything so that then when you show it a stop sign even if it hasn't seen many of it it can still know that it's a sign and not an animal and so if you want to be able to play a lot of games simultaneously and really start to learn what general applicable knowledge and general intelligence is you need to play on a lot of stuff so so universe is this idea of playing on multiple games all at once and eventually play
1: across every game. So, yeah, much like a, a human could sort of pick up any yeah. any game and start figuring it out and playing it. And in generally the the approach we take as humans is we don't sit down and, and read the instruction book cover to cover before we play a game right like we'll just pick it up and start playing it and we'll, we figure it out well
0: even yeah exactly and as a kid you might play a very simple game like checkers or connect four
1: and oh, what do you that, that actually reminds me uh, so if if you do want to read something interesting on this this there's a book called blondie blondie 24 i believe yeah blondie 24 it was like 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, and it was one of the first books to, or Chronicle chronicles one of the first bots to play this game. It played Checkers, I believe. Mm. Uh, and they built a, a, it was one of the first artificial intelligence uh, game playing things. And it, it was, that was trained without any knowledge of the game. Like it basically just like figured out how to play Checkers by... Losing a lot of times, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a pretty good book. Uh, the book's called Blondie 24, and it's a pretty good book that kind of walks through the whole process. At like, you know, because it's probably 15 or 20 years old at this point, it's a little more approachable, approachable. Than, than some of the current stuff. So that's sorry. good. When you said checkers, it, it popped that in my head.
0: Yeah, but I mean, what one of the things that's interesting for for checkers, right, or even playing Connect Four, is like, okay, there's two players, and the goal is to win, and you've got points or some sort of set of movements you can take, and those movements are then sort of um not you you can't play again. You you your those moves lock you into a set of now possible outcomes, right? And there's all these right. things you just take for granted about how games work. Um that then when you then approach another game like Backgammon, you're like, oh I kinda understand what's probably the goals here. And then you learn the specific rules. And then now that you know backgammon, you might be able to be better at dominoes or some other game and then you start playing multiplayer games and you start to understand how multiple players sort of go in a circle it's not random who's next in most games so and then you get into like 3D games and, and a big challenge in 3D games is how to move around how to sort of think about the 3D space and that's its own skill and and then there's sort of reaction times and then there's scoring systems and All these things start to build on each other. And to your point, if you're a gamer, then you understand when you pick up a brand new first person shooter or a real time strategy game, sort of what the general parameters are going to be. And then you learn the details of that particular game. And and um, right now, most AI algorithms don't have any of that transfer learning. Um, and so that's another really big goal of how do you eventually get to general purpose is you have to be able to remember what you've done in the past and figure out what parts of those are transferable. Um, and so, you know, even though it might just seem like, well, they're just playing video games, how's that going to get us to (laughs) this super intelligence?
1: Um, there are a lot of things that are, if you you start playing Gran Turismo, you can figure out how that gets you to, uh, self-driving cars. Well, that's the other thing is it is being like
0: the work OpenAI has done on making uh, GTA 4 and GTA 5 online accessible. It is literally being used as an open world environment for training cars. And it it is helping all these startups in ways that uh, maybe weren't even fully anticipated by OpenAI. And so th- that's <laughs> one of the cool things about building open source software uh, just generally is like it can be used by all these people who wouldn't have the technical skill to build it in the first place but can benefit from it and and make advancements in their own area of expertise
1: yeah the, the whole area has sort of a, a homebrew computer club vibe to it right now mm-hmm. where um i think previously you needed like supercomputers to to do this sort of stuff and it kind of kept it out of the realm of the small startups and hobbyists but now uh with the you know azure and aws um these types of services and they're they're starting to bring on like high end GPUs on on there and you can like bring, spool up lots of stuff and do very interesting things that it it's coming down and then you've got like you know large data sets and things like universe that it's becoming interesting where you can do some pretty fun things as a hobbyist uh with with these with these things and and to just kind of bring it back to the accelerations too is is you can imagine with self driving cars Um, like, you know, you're driving around and you've got real people out in the world doing this, this driving, but there's a very finite amount of that you can do. But once you actually start doing it in a virtual world, you can have, instead of getting like, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of miles a year, you can literally be driving billions of miles through infinite numbers of permutations of, of weird environments. And, and you can start drastically accelerating the, uh, uh, driving abilities.
0: Right, exactly. And the same way that, you know, playing, playing one game of checkers gets you one level of skill, but playing a billion games of checkers would get you one place. But if the same billion games played the exact same way, that doesn't teach you anything. You have to add variance to it. And one of the challenges of just driving the same roads every day is generally things kind of go okay and work normally. And so one big critique of the self-driving car uh, with AI is like, well, you're not going to see the edge cases yeah, you might not see all the edge cases in the real world, but you can learn those edge cases in your simulation. You can be having hurricanes and tornadoes happening with dump trucks and anything you <laughs> want millions of times on every single mile and see yeah. what happens. So I think a lot of people are underestimating how powerful simulation is going to be in in this. And you see something like Jim or Dota where they're training purely in a simulated environment and it beats someone who is in the real world playing this game. And there's not that much different between a human driving a car as uh someone manning you know or, or sort of controlling the controller of a game i mean it's just right it's a human taking action on some uh intermediate control of a well, system
1: yeah and and i mean for things like high-end racing vehicles and aircraft like we literally use computer simulations to train, right, to, people, train people to train to train humans to yeah, do exactly, it. Yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly that's a really good example. It's like yeah the, to be, be certified on the dreamliner you have to go in a simulator of the dreamliner and it is so good that people we were willing to accept that as training instead of being in the real thing. And we yeah. crash those simulators to teach people and we do this in the space program. So um simulation and what OpenAI is doing here in simulation the fact that you can like go into gta and you know train someone to like run around a city that is perfectly modeled and learn the city or drive the city it's like wow this is going to get pretty pretty extreme pretty quick uh the types of things we're going to be able to teach these things to do in these simulations and games um and then the other thing they just opened up somewhat recently was the web so clicking fields copying things anything you could do on the web you now can use open AI to teach something, use reinforcement learning to do it. So if you want to like have it click on a favorite, every tweet or learn what tweets to favorite or do anything on a web form, anything on the web is now accessible to reinforcement learning, any algorithm you could pump into open AI. So now they're training on the web to do stuff. And it's like, That doesn't bode well for us. Incredible. Like you could have it just read everything on the web, not even use a bot, but like literally click on things. Uh, Really, really incredible. So the last two goals, uh, and then we'll just go into the final thoughts. One is they also want to build a household robot. Um, So they want to enable a physical robot with off the shelf, not manufactured by OpenAI, to perform basic housework. And so... So so like
1: the TV show Humans yeah it, well
0: it might it might look more robotic, but uh like Bicentennial man I guess for the uh. slightly older folks or the um you know the uh Rosie from um the jetsons <laughs> um and so they've already started on this, and one of the papers they've recently published was this work with um a vision neural network and imitation network, and so what they've done already is they've created a robot a robotic system trained entirely in simulation, just as we were talking about. And deployed on a physical robot, which can learn a new task after seeing it done just once. So they call it like um, one-shot imitation learning is sort of the general concept here. And what they did is they used uh, VR and the gloves with VR to uh, basically stack blocks in a particular order. And the neural network was paying attention to this. And then it saw a set of blocks and it picks up the blocks and puts them in the correct order having never seen the blocks before, having never moved its robotic arm before. And there's a video of this on their um, site and they've, they've published it. And they're like, this might look trivial because it's just children's blocks, but this has massive implications for (laughs) housework and things like, oh, how do you unload the dishwasher? Well, we've trained the neural network to notice every single dish ever. So it knows what dishes are. It then knows how to move its arm. Perfectly fine because we've just trained it on moving its arm around a lot. That's no big deal. And then we're going to show it how once how to take the dishes out and where it goes, how to take a glass out where it goes, and then it can just do load the dishwasher <laughs> for you. And, oh, it sees dishes on the counter. It puts them in like it's incredible. Like, I think people are really underestimating. They see these demos. They I think they kind of do a, a disservice by doing demos. that seems so simple. I understand why they do it for their papers to make it just like more general but it is incredible what this thing did with just one pass and and this is like the super early stuff like they've only been
1: around two years it's it's mind-boggling that's crazy yeah and and then it, it, once you start getting into fabrics too it becomes far more complicated there's been a lot of research done with like just getting a robot to fold towels which is surprisingly difficult
0: yeah any soft body thing like the physics of that are so hard like you know even just thinking about like uh, computer animation you just think about when how hard was it for soft objects to be modeled versus hard objects um Right, and that's why I like just s- hard.
1: like sewing like sweatshops are probably one of the last human uh, manufacturing outposts because it's it turns out it's really difficult to get a a robot to understand the the tactile feedback and and sew fabric properly. That's that's it. I mean, which but and by really difficult it means it's probably just a couple of years off instead of like a couple months off.
0: Yeah. And then one of the last goals they have publicly published is to build an agent with useful natural language understanding. So this is Jarvis essentially. Uh <laughs> they plan to build an agent that can perform a complex task specified by language and ask for clarification about the task if it's ambiguous. So The full HAL level talking to something and making it happen. OpenAI plans to have that solved as well. So, they want to make a household robot that can do any housework, build an agent that you can talk to and have a conversation and do tasks for you, uh, play any game ever made better than any human, and measure their progress towards this general purpose. So, those three things of something that can do physical tasks in the real world without human supervision, interact with humans through conversation and then play any game, which is sort of a, um, like, I guess a complex goal setting and achieving thing. Those three things blend together, start to get closer to what a human does. I mean, there are probably humans that all they do is they play video games, talk to people (laughs) and do some housework.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, like cinematically, that's basically like if you take her and combine it with ex machina and maybe some, yeah, bicentennial man or, yeah, or yeah, humans or maybe Terminator. I mean, you've essentially got that. So I, I think what they're doing is really incredible. I think this
0: is probably one of the biggest areas of, I don't know, uh, the biggest technological important work being done is on AI and general AI. But I think it's also generally believed that it's going to come through lots of uh, specific AI work um, sort of eventually coming together um but as we were talking about in the beginning Elon does think this is like he's doing it not because he's super he's not doing open ai because he wants to just get to this outcome faster he's doing it actually because he wants to ensure that there's a safe and good outcome and that having one or f- few companies having access to this amazing technology could lead to uh basically a singleton where one organization uh basically runs the world and <laughs> well briefly
1: until until it's replaced by the ai
0: well yeah exactly so if they were able to control it for some period of time but then yes and that if you were actually to have multiple groups achieve uh super intelligence simultaneously uh then you have a better chance of not having nefarious ai you could actually fight ai with ai sort of like uh I don't know, like Transformers or something um, <laughs> where they're fighting on behalf of the humans against the bad ones. Um, so
1: you'd have some sort of super intelligence, mutually assured destruction that would kind of two independently develop yeah, exactly. AI. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, I think in, in of the nuclear ideas, it's sort of like, yeah, you need to have the good guys and the bad guys have it. And unfortunately, both sides think they're the good guys, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> um, it actually stops you using it. Um, and this. I think this is also very much what's happening where you've... Got uh, very strong hackers using artificial intelligence and neural networks to try and hack. And then you also need to have that on the protection side to detect these hacks. And um, so I, I, I do think that that's important. One of the other challenges that, if you dig in more to like the superintelligence book, is the likelihood that you would have multiple groups achieving this at the same time is actually quite uh, uncommon for folks that achieve, um, the same technological breakthrough at the same time, uh, even months apart could be problematic as we talked about for the, the, how, depending on how fast the train is moving
1: essentially. So (laughs) it's like, yeah, if you've seen the Terminator movies, the, the, the moment Skynet becomes self-aware is when all hell breaks loose. Right. It's sort of, uh, this may actually be an
0: extremely short amount of time for humans to adjust. and, And that's the, that's the, that's the scary thing, uh, as well is that, we could go from, oh, wow, that household robot's pretty powerful to, oh, oh my, we've just passed human intelligence and are a hundred <laughs> times faster, like within weeks. Um, it makes
1: your coffee for you when you go to work. And then by the
0: time you come home,
1: you're <laughs> There's subject, no home. It owns no you. Home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: there is no home. You're just, you can't come home. Everything's crashed. Anyways. Um, so anyways, yeah, he's, Elon, one of the quotes is, AI is a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization so he says this is the scariest thing that he knows of um
1: so yeah, but it's it is a little presumptuous though to assume that uh it could be an, a risk but it's it's kind of presumptuous to assume you could control it i mean i guess you have to try but you know there, there it could very well be that it is true that it is a risk and it is also true that you cannot control it so even if you can't control it
0: i think the uh elon is taking the approach that it is worth trying And he wants to see a future. If you imagine a future with humans and you want to have that be a good outcome and good as defined by his current set of of values, that uh, you would do everything you can to try and uh, contain AI to be positive for humanity versus destructive. And um, yeah, the the merits of that and the potential for actually doing that, I think, are, uh, yeah debatable but (laughs) i do think it's worth trying and also i do think in he's also said and even bill gates has said that that's potentially the much harder problem and so you would want to spend as much time on that as possible now because it doesn't matter if you do it afterwards you have to get it you have to have the control before and the analogy on the nuclear stuff again is like once you figured out how to break the atom and release the energy that's the easy part but doing that in a safe way and containing it so that you could actually build a You know, nuclear power plant is actually extremely hard, and we're still not very good at it. Um, And so, the idea that, yes, even if you think, oh, well, just don't connect it to the internet or all these things, like (laughs) there is lots of examples of how an air gap is not enough, and it would be able to manipulate humans to come fix it or release some technology that's really amazing. And then we build that technology. And oops, they've built a backdoor into how to getting itself online. Like there's all these cr- very easy to break philosophical ideas on how like controlling it by trying to just keep it off the Internet or put it on a box is not going to stop or just it. just
1: make all the dinosaurs female. They're still right. going to end up yeah. taking over Jurassic Park, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: So <laughs> I, I, I find this stuff extremely fun to think about, even though it potentially leads to society not existing. And it's not a nihilistic thing. It's just like it is it seems like one of those things that there's going to be a lot of incredible uh, perceivable changes happening as we approach this outcome, because there'll be these narrow aspects like self-driving cars, um, like, you know, winning any game and all these other narrow AI fields of just amazing speech detection and human interaction with computers that we will see along the way before we really have to get to this general purpose AI problem that will benefit humans, but also cause disruption. And that may be the thing that causes us to really be concerned and start to be illuminated to like everyday people of like, well, what happens when this thing is really like, this already seems really smart. What happens when it actually is generally capable and infinitely scalable. Um, So I, yeah, the next, 20 to 50 years are going to be
1: incredible and (laughs) maybe her is the best use case or the best case scenario for us where we do invent the and spoiler alert we do invent some sort of super intelligence and then it just decides to leave and we just get to stay here in our in our little backwater and and have our little human lives yeah any uh, any last thoughts mike yeah, I'll just leave it with that sad trombone right there. OK.: If anyone else: <laughs> ha-
0: No, I. I uh, if anyone else has any thoughts on this or papers or books or talks that they found particularly interesting or mind-bending, uh, please share those with us. And uh, you can do that from uh, let's see, Twitter at the Tesla Show, if it's short and a link uh, on Reddit at R/the Tesla Show. Uh, you can also send us a message at our website, theteslashow.com and uh you know comment on the episode as well or send us a message um
1: or just have your household bot send a message for you exactly
0: um and uh also just want to uh say if you are in the market for an s or an x and want to save a thousand dollars and get unlimited supercharging you can use the referral code of our friends the tesla geeks and uh, you will get uh both of those uh on your uh, on your car, and they will get a chance to get closer to actually driving the boring machine, <laughs> uh, which is the next level that they're unlocking, and it helps us get to cool events like the semi event in September. Um, so it does yeah, help the show,
1: and hopefully, our, our, our Tesla Geek friends are, are safe and sound in, in Houston, which yes. is going through some serious uh, flooding right now and yeah. hurricane-related uh, damage. So yeah, hopefully thoughts everyone. and prayers, as they yeah. say.
0: All right. Well, I'll talk to you again next week, then, Mike.